HIV PrEP is something that we're all very interested in. It's a rapidly moving field. We have a national expert in HIV PrEP, my dear friend, Jeannie Morazzo, who moved recently from Seattle to become the chief of ID at the University of Alabama. Jeannie. Big applause. Let me do your slides for you. Yes, that's okay. Yes, it's a pleasure to be here with such an experienced group. Um, it's hard to figure out what to talk about with PrEP these days. There's so much going on. You could talk about the current status of PrEP use in the United States. You could talk about the interesting pharmacokinetic analyses that are going on with newer drugs, clinical trials. So hopefully I'll hit some of the high spots um, for all of these things today. Uh, these are my disclosures, um, so you can take a look at those. And what I want to do today, um, among other things, is to cover these three key areas. And these are really what I want you to take away from this talk. First of all, uh, you all know that tenofovir-based uh, compounds are really the keystone of HIV pre-exposure prophylaxis. But I want you to know that it's not a one-size-fits-all sort of thing. So there are differences in the delivery of tenofovir and emtricitabine specifically to the rectal epithelium and the cervicovaginal tissue, and that has big implications for protection of people who have vaginal sex primarily versus anal sex primarily. We think of it as men versus women, but remember, there may be a substantial contribution of unprotected anal intercourse uh, for women um, in terms of HIV exposures. The next thing is to talk about some recent clinical trial results that demonstrate the efficacy of an exciting, potentially new, uh, exciting uh, delivery system, and that's the depivirine vaginal ring in preventing HIV acquisition. And then I want you to be able to name at least one antiretroviral drug currently under study as a long-acting injectable PrEP agent, and hopefully Dr. Gulick will have already given you a little bit of a head start. Uh, on that. So let's start with a question, and I suspect many of you are well familiar with this, but which of the following is true regarding the safety of the use of daily PDF FTC as PrEP for HIV acquisition? First, irreversible decreases in bone density are common. Acquisition of K65R mutation occurs in the majority of people who fail this regimen and acquire HIV. GI intolerance, gastrointestinal intolerance, usually mild, limited to the first weeks of initiation. And proteinuria occurs within the first three months of use. So go ahead and we will vote. How come I don't hear music? I did the clicker thingy. No music? So serious. <laughs> it is voting, right? It's not voting. Click again. Okay. I messed it up. Oh, I have to reset. No, I was, you're good. I was promised I wouldn't have to do that. Sorry about that. Did I do something wrong? No. no. Okay, good. Of course, I always blame myself. Don't blame yourself. Anyway, you can think about that yeah. while we're, while we're um, dallying. looking it up online while we're, I know how you are. So let's try this. Okay, let's try this. Oh, okay, I feel much better. Now you can vote. 
you know, I lack the gene for musicals. It's a problem. Except for Hamilton. Okay, let's go. Yeah, so everybody, I think, in this group is very experienced and knows, uh, knows the answers. But let's look at this one. Approximately how long does a woman need to take daily oral TDF-FTC to achieve protective levels consistently, I should add, in the cervix and vaginal tissues? So two days, seven days, 25 days, or 90 days. Let's go ahead and vote. All right, I can get behind it. Judy Penn. Daniel Craig. Was that the right one? Mary Baker? All right, let's see what it looks like. Okay, so a lot of you say a week because you are thinking of how we're using PrEP right now, um, but some of you think that it needs to be a little bit longer. So let's get into it. Okay, so here's what I'm gonna talk about. The PrEP experience very briefly with TDF-FTC current status. Again, um, issues around access and adherence, adherence and access. Those are really what we're talking about now because we know it works. Testing biomedical interventions, uh, what have the biomedical trials taught us in terms of adherence, and also remember, it's really an amazing time because it's essentially the end of the placebo arm uh, with, with, with biomedical prevention. So there are no biomedical prevention trials for HIV, including vaccine trials that can truly use a placebo arm uh, because it would be unethical. And then what's the evolving evidence for new products and potential indications, long-acting delivery platforms, and what's the future for combination prevention? We'd like to envision a future where we could have a one-stop shopping, maybe not where you can get guns, wedding gowns, and cold beer like we do in the South, uh, but where women, for example, can go and get contraception and PrEP, or they can decide that they just want PrEP because they want to get pregnant. Um, so lots of options, I think, would be very good. So what's your practice with regard to TDF, FDC, HIV, PrEP? How often do you prescribe it? So take a look at these, um, go ahead and vote, and just let's get a sense of what people uh, are doing with uh, TDF-FTC as HIV prep. Okay, wow, it's almost random. Are you sure you voted? This is usually what comes up when nobody votes and you just uh, accept it. A bunch of you have never prescribed it, so good. You'll, you hopefully you'll learn uh, something about this. So. This slide really attempts to summarize all of the data from the very large placebo-controlled, randomized-controlled trials of daily FTC, TDF, PrEP, um, given as an oral pill. And what it tries to show you is a comparison of the percent of samples in each of these trials where the participants had detectable tenofovir in their plasma relative to the efficacy that was seen overall in the drug's effect on protecting from HIV. So let's start in the bottom because that's the perfect or the best case scenario we had. That was the Partners PrEP study, and that was where they enrolled HIV serodiscordant couples and randomized the HIV negative person to oral placebo, oral tenofovir, or oral tenofovir with FTC. And what you can see there that is that 81% of the participants had tenofovir detected in their plasma. Really fantastic adherence. One of the reasons was because they enrolled both members of the partnership, so there was a lot of support for those people to be in the trial and to use the product. And they showed an overall protection of PrEP versus placebo of 75%, so really a spectacular result. Going to the TDF2 trial, which is right above it, that's the study of heterosexual people in Botswana. They did not enroll partners. They enrolled single individuals, 
but they still had excellent adherence. 79% of people in that trial had detectable drug in their plasma. And remember, these determinations were made after these studies were over. They were not doing real-time detection of drug, and we'll talk about that later, a key point when you're thinking about this, okay? What protective level did they see overall? 62%, not quite as good, but really quite remarkable. The IPREX study many of you are familiar with, and that was a study, I should mention the bottom two enrolled heterosexual people. Um, the IPREX study, of course, enrolled men who had sex with men in many countries, and uh, they showed that 50% of those men actually had detectable tenofovir in blood. So really not very good adherence in IPREX. And in fact, many people were surprised that they managed to show a statistically significant protection level, 44% in those men, despite pretty crappy adherence, right? Only half the people randomized to the active product actually were taking the drug. This almost certainly reflects the differential concentrations in rectal versus cervicovaginal tissues. So got to get it out there right now. PrEP is much more forgiving for people who are exposed um, at the rectum. It's one of the reasons you can dose very soon before rectal sex, and you don't have to continue it uh, very long after rectal or anal sex. Um, so that's the IPREX story. And then you have the SAD, FEMPREP, and the VOICE study, which are very similar stories. These were both trials that were done in young women in sub-Saharan Africa. Adherence was really terrible despite very, very valiant efforts by both teams to get adherence up to good uh, levels. And remember, these all occurred before people had any idea that tenofovir-based PrEP was really going to work as well as it did. Only 26% of women, 26 to 30% in voice, had detectable tenofovir in the plasma in both of those studies. And as you can see, the efficacy was very, very low, 6%. And in the voice study, it was actually essentially zero. So very, very low. So very, very tight relationship between very good adherence here and protection. So that's the bottom line uh, when it comes to TDF-FTC. Um, in fact, um, um, since those studies were done, we've had two real-world demonstration-type projects that I will just sort of uh, note to you that I think is worth knowing about. This was the, uh, the PROUD study run by Sheena McCormick and her team, and what they looked at was to randomize um, HIV-uninfected men who have sex with men in 13 clinics in London who were at risk for HIV, given their demographics and sexual behavior, to immediate or deferred PrEP. And basically, they would sort of wait for a year before starting PrEP. Um, and what they showed, which resulted in the DSMB stopping the study early, was that there was an 86% reduction in risk over 60 weeks with immediate PrEP uh, in the, these men. So this is a study that showed that PrEP sooner is better than PrEP later if you're at risk. There is no reason to defer it. And one of the things that I've been really passionate about, as have many of our sort of PrEP advocates, has been Really, if you see a young man who has sex with men and has a new diagnosis of syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, is not yet HIV infected, they should not walk out the door without PrEP being discussed and ideally PrEP being prescribed if they're evaluable for it or, or if, if they can take it. So let's get into this question of dosing. A 22-year-old man is going to Miami for a weekend. Two weeks from now, he wants to use TDF-FTC as HIV PrEP. He's never taken it. How would you advise him? assuming that he's able to take it, he has no contraindications to the medication. One, start immediately and continue through the time of risk, so he's going in two weeks. Two, start five to seven days before and continue throughout the time of risk. Three, see how things go. Use it on demand. Why take it if you don't need it? Four, just use condoms. Let's go ahead and vote.
so many more better party music options could have been used for this particular costume. Just saying. Okay, so some people want to start immediately and get him used to it, continue through time of risk. Some people say it's okay to start five to seven days before and continue through time of risk. I'm interested to talk to those of you who say just use condoms um, because I suspect the efficacy of telling him that in this case would be zero, um, but that's my perhaps somewhat cynical side. Um, so let's talk about that. The, um, uh, the Iperge study was the on-demand PrEP study in men at high risk for HIV infection. This was uh, done in France, Paris primarily, and this was a randomized double-blind trial of event-driven the equivalent to pericoital, which is what the Caprisa 004 study did for tenofovir gel, um, oral prep versus placebo in France. And the regimen here was to advise men to take two tablets of TDF-FGC, two to 24 hours before sex, a tablet 24 hours after sex, and then a tablet 48 hours after the first driven event-driven dose. So really a 72-hour window. Now, one very important implication of this dosing strategy is that if you're having sex three times a week, what's the implication? You're pretty much on continuous daily oral prep, right? How many of these men do you think were having sex two to three times a week? The vast majority of them, right? So this turned out to be really a practical sort of project that intended to study peri-sex prep, but really it, for all intents and purposes was a confirmation of risk-driven PrEP that turned out to be, in this very sexually active population, daily PrEP use. Not in all, but definitely in many. And there's some nice um, visuals, I don't have time to slide, but show this, but in the New England Journal paper, some very nice visuals that talk about the density of TDF-FTC use in these participants, showing you that the majority used it quite frequently. Bottom line is that there was, exactly as in Proud study in UK, an 86% reduction in risk. So a beautiful demonstration, again, of the power of oral prep in this group. And then just to wrap up what we're seeing with the real-world prep use today, um, it's actually looking really quite safe. Al Liu published very recently in JAMA and Internal Medicine the results of the PrEP demonstration project in the U.S. Many of you have probably uh, been a part of those studies and really confirmed that it's very well tolerated. Obviously, the most uh, notable adverse effects are just what you're seeing with TDF-FTC used as treatment. So you're experienced treatment providers and you know that the initial GI effects are the real thing that we have to deal with. Important to know that Nellie Mugo published in JAMA from the partners uh, study that I mentioned before that PrEP is safe during pregnancy. Certainly we are using it. People are recommending it. Recently a nice study of the experience with periconception PrEP was published in the American Journal of OBGYN. Very observational, anecdotal, case report sort of clinical review but showed that if you use TDF-FTC in the month before conception and the month after conception, there were no perinatal uh, acquisitions noted in that study. So not a randomized trial, but I think really that's what people are doing and that's the real world use. You can use it with contraceptives. The partners prep study showed it, that it's very safe for women. And acquired resistance on TDF-FTC as prep is very rare. It really occurred in the clinical trials only in people who were acutely infected. Um, during their initial enrollment. Why didn't we know they were acutely infected? Because we screened people using antibody and they were simply in the window, so they did not have uh, antibody detection. But when we went back and tested all the samples from entry for viral load, that's how those infections were identified. Now you may have heard a couple of weeks ago at the HIV Research for Prevention meeting in Chicago, there was a case pre presented by Howard Grossman that got a lot of press. press. It was a man who was on 
uh, TDF-FTC PrEP and actually acquired a multi-resistant strain of HIV. It turns out that was acquired resistance, so that was not induced or transmitted uh, resistance, so it was not necessarily associated with his PrEP use, but it's just a reminder that it's the exception that proves the rule. It certainly can happen if you are, if you are exposed to a virus that is resistant to this medication, it certainly can happen. But the important metric that I like to think about is that even if you consider that, you still avert 12 infections for every case of potential resistance. And you can do better if you're really careful about not putting people with suspected acute infection on PrEP. So remember, very important to screen for any viral syndrome, whether it's a rash, whether it's a fever, whether it's the sniffles. I would not start uh, PrEP in these people because when you look back at the acute infections that occurred in the PrEP trials, they were not real specific for HIV. And you know if you've seen people who've seroconverted with viral presentations, it can be incredibly nonspecific. So the good news in the real world is that it's working, it's working very well. The uptake has gone like this. Remember in the first year, everybody was like, oh, I'm not sure that men will really use PrEP. Now it's just really gone explosively, which I think is great, um, great news. Jonathan Volk in CID in 2015 uh, presented data that did get a lot of good press. They showed no new HIV infections in over 600 PrEP initiators at Kaiser Permanente in San Francisco. It's historical data compared, it's, it's actually observational data compared to a historical control. So again, it's real world. It's not perfect, but it was really very, very um, uh, supportive of this use. Now, people did change their reported condom use after starting PrEP um, in this study, and 41% of these men reported using fewer condoms or condoms less frequently, and that's not surprising at all and certainly parallels what we're seeing in the real world, which is a very impressive increase in sexually transmitted infection incidence. We could talk about this um, for at length, and certainly I could talk about it at length, as, as many of you know, but what I want to use this slide to talk about is not so much the um, incidence of STIs in this cohort who was taking PrEP at Kaiser Permanente, because 50% of these men experienced any STIs, including rectal uh, STIs in 33%, chlamydia and 33%, gonorrhea 28%, syphilis almost 6%. Um, so lots of rectal infections, but what I want to point out, despite a third of them getting a rectal infection, they saw no HIV in these cohorts. To me, this speaks to the very, very high efficacy of uh, TDF-FTC in a, what probably is a somewhat inflammatory environment in the setting of a recent acquisition of an STI. So as an STI person, am I disturbed by this? Uh, you know, whatever. As an HIV prevention person, I am elated by it. So come back to my dual um, nature in a moment. Now, why bother? Why, even, why should we even think about additional options for PrEP when I'm telling you that this is a great drug, it's working really well? Um, so I think there are a couple of ways to think about this. You could imagine people saying who are, who are sort of uh, biomedical prevention, perhaps nihilist, and say, well, we've got PrEP, we've got a little PrEP night right now, all the resources should just go into vaccine research. And there are many people who feel that way, just FYI. Um, and what are their arguments? Well, if we really get treatment as prevention and PrEP out there in high incidence populations, we can probably stabilize the epidemic and we don't need to waste, quote unquote, uh, resources on these other options. Um, there are already sustained delivery systems for ARV PrEP advancing in the investigative pipeline and you heard about Cabot Chagovir from TRIP just a moment ago. 
And then, of course, they'll point to the clinical trials that have experienced very big problems with adherence. For example, I mentioned voice and femprep, and certainly the microbicide trials with Tenofovir gel have had challenges with this. And they'll say, well, people don't want those things anyway, so why are you going to go ahead and look at them? I actually am on the other side, and I think that um, developing products for oral PrEP are a bridge to critical threshold of coverage with treatment as prevention and PrEP. Most places in the world, we're really not at 90-90-90 in any way, let alone targeting PrEP delivery for vulnerable people. Second of all, you know, I think that people need on-demand protection. People aren't always in control of when they're going to have sex and how they're going to have it, particularly women who are vulnerable and transgender people who are especially vulnerable to sexual assault or having um, having just coercive sex um, in settings where they don't know that they can optimize the pharmacokinetics of oral prep for seven days before they have planned sex. I think that's a really important point. I think having choices for personalized protection is really a big deal, right? You may not want to be on prep for eight weeks. You may not want to be on prep for, for a few days at a time. And I think we can continue to aim for low and minimal systemic absorption and toxicity. So, so TDF-FTC is not perfect, as we know, right, from long-term use. I'll talk about the different pharmacokinetics for the cervix versus the rectum. I've already alluded to that. And what about possibility for co-protection? Wouldn't it be fantastic to have an agent that didn't just protect against HIV, but also protected against herpes virus? Uh, genital herpes, huge cofactor in HIV epidemics. So that would be pretty great. And then multipurpose prevention is something very, very near to my heart. And that is really the idea that you can get particularly young women in many settings into HIV prevention uh, modalities because you can really play on or speak to their need for contraception, something that we don't often talk about in the HIV field. So what's this non-adherence question? Um, and I think we really have entered a different phase of um, uh, prevention in healthy people. We've always assumed that when we enrolled people in randomized control trials, pretty much for anything, whether it was blood pressure medication, diabetes medication, whatever, that they did as they were told. It's our sort of patriarchal uh, dominating view as, as medical doctors, right? You know, just take the pill and then we'll see if it works for you. Um, well, people are either smarter or more rebellious than we realize because it turns out that in many studies, non-adherence has actually been a problem. And in fact, it's a bigger problem when you have people who are healthy who may not really see themselves at risk for the outcome that you're going to study. Or they may not see that the risks for taking the product outweigh the potential benefits. So it's a really, really big issue. So that's a really big reason to drive some of these methods that can get around that. And the injectable cabotegravir is a great point, and I'll come back to that in a moment. I want to just mention this paper because this is the paper that I think speaks the best to this issue of pharmacology and why we might want more sustained delivery systems, particularly in women. And we're relying on daily dosing of a product like TDF-FTC can be a little bit dicey. This was a very cool study in JID this year by Angela Kashuba's group uh, at University of North Carolina. And what they did was to combine a very sophisticated mathematical modeling approach to a measurement of mucosal tissue concentrations of both TDF, the tenofovir diphosphate, and uh, FTC triphosphate, so the activated forms of drugs. And they looked at what it took to achieve protective levels of both of those compounds, activated levels in the cervix versus the rectum. They used healthy volunteers, actually, so they dosed them for a couple of weeks before this, and then they actually did biopsies to look at this. And what they showed was that the colorectal 
concentrations of activated tenofovir were 10 times higher than that in the lower female genital tract, even when you had comparable plasma and PBMC levels. So even if you get good levels in your lymph nodes or whatever, you're still gonna have lower levels in the cervix and the vagina. What this is about is very interesting. It turns out that if you look at concentrations of competitive nucleotides, so DATP or the analog for amprocitabine, there are a lot more of those in the female genital tract um, than there are in the rectum. And those DATP in particular are competitors for tenofovir's insertion into proviral DNA. And that's how it works, right, as a chain terminator for, uh, for DNA. So the question is, is, is this related to some of the poor efficacy uh, levels that we saw in some of the biomedical trials of TDF-FTC in women? It may be. Adherence clearly was low, but it may have actually been a double whammy, so that even if women were taking this, trying to take it, but doing it imperfectly, they were getting a less effective uh, concentration in the genital tract. This also reminds me to talk about TAF. I don't have a slide for this, but many people are assuming that you can just substitute TAF, which we're now using for treatment, for PrEP. Please don't do that because we don't know that that's actually going to be effective. And the reason is that there was a, an abstract at CROI just this year that looked only in eight people at tissue levels versus systemic levels of TAF versus TDF. And the tissue levels in, in both the cervix and the rectum were practically undetectable for TAF. Um, so what does that mean? Well, TAF we know gets into PBMCs and lymph nodes perfectly. That's why it works so well probably for treatment. But we really don't know where the drugs need to be in the genital tissues. And that's kind of a really big conundrum considering that we're treating millions of people uh, right now with these drugs. So there is a randomized controlled trial that's just starting um, that's sponsored by Gilead that's looking at TAF versus uh, TDF-FTC for PrEP. Um, there will be sites in New York and New Jersey area. I believe they're not enrolling yet, uh, but there are uh, started to enroll in Los Angeles among other sites. So keep your ears open for that. The implications of this t is that um, you can get, you can take a dose of tenofovir FTC or TDF FTC if you're a man or a woman or whatever tissue you're talking about. And if you take a dose, you actually can get concentrations in the tissues pretty quickly. The problem is that to sustain really uh, viral toxic levels, you need for women to be 100% adherent and they need to take it every single day. For men, you can get around that, again, assuming that men, primary site of infection, at least, is, is anal intercourse. We're talking about MSM here. You can get around that by taking, as we know, a minimum of four days a week. And you can probably also do it as a more perisex act like they showed um, in the Paris Ypres study. So women need longer time to really establish consistent um, and sustained levels of protective PDF um, in those tissues. Okay, so what else are we doing for sustained delivery? Let's talk about the ASPIRE study. This was a very interesting study just completed last year, multi-center randomized double-blind study of a vaginal matrix ring that contained an NNRTI, dipiverine, um, and they looked at the effectiveness of safety um, in preventing HIV acquisition. And what did they show? Well, the first thing I'll tell you that they did, based on the results that we got in the VOICE study and the FEMPREP study with low adherence, was to shift the paradigm from deferring detection of adherence by drug levels until the end of the study to doing it during the study. And if you are any biostatisticians in the room or epidemiologists, you know that that's really the holy grail, right, of a blinded trial. You never want to unblind. Well, they didn't unblind participants, but they unblinded sites. So they actually went to the sites, they measured the piverine levels in these women, 
They didn't let anybody know what their individual levels were, but if a site had a low level, they told that site that they needed to buck up and they needed to get the participants to adhere. And if they didn't adhere, the sites were excluded from the study. You could argue with this, but it really is an attempt to optimize the biomedical measurement of whether this product works. A totally new paradigm in prevention trials, so keep that in the back of your mind. What did they show overall? They excluded data from two sites with lower adherence, and in the intent to treat analysis as shown here, the rate of acquisition of HIV was reduced by 37% from 2.8 to 4.4%. There's Kaplan-Meier curve. And you might say, eh, it's about what you saw for the RV144 Thai vaccine study, right? So you might see, think there's a signal here. You're not jumping up and down, but it is interesting, okay? They then went on to do several sub-analyses of the data, that data. They looked specifically at age-stratified categories. Again, knowing that younger women are at much higher risk for HIV and tend to be less adherent in these settings. And what did they show? Indeed, women 18 to 27%, absolutely no effect on efficacy. Women aged 22 to 26, a 56% 56, 56 reduction. Um, in HIV acquisition. So that was really quite striking. And I want you to look at the placebo incidence in that arm, 6.1%, very high in quote unquote older geriatric women, as John Brooks would call them. Um, and then about what about the really old, old geriatric women, 27 to 45, again, placebo incidence three, they had a reduction of 51%. So this was really fascinating. Does this mean that younger women are different? Is it biologically that they were just not really, they were getting STIs, they were getting herpes, they were maybe using more, who knows? Um, or was it all about adherence? Well, um, of course, adherence played a huge role, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But overall, if you look at women older than 21, protection was 56%. Elizabeth Brown uh, presented in Durban a beautiful analysis of this to really get at the question of adherence. And what she did was to model the efficacy by looking at residual depivirine levels in the ring. So the cool thing about the ring is if you wear it for 30 days, that it actually drains the depivirine from the ring. So you can take it out, you can measure the residual level, and if you have a ton of depivirine, ring in, there, depivirine in there, you know that nobody, they didn't have the ring in, or they put it in right before they came to see you, which has happened. Um, she then used that to model um, whether people were non-adherent, low-adherent, or medium-adherent, medium-adherence, and this is actually what she showed. Down the bottom here, um, if people were non-adherent, the risk reduction was not significant, but in the low to high adherence, it was 56%, and in the medium high adherence, it was actually 65%, so pretty remarkable reduction in HIV incidence. And she went on to do a much more sophisticated modeling looking at time on product, using these residual drug levels by the number of rings reduced. A very, very interesting and robust analysis in what she showed that if you were in the top third of adherence in this study, you had the possibility of an upper level of 92% risk reduction in HIV. So this is actually, I think, a very, very potent biological signal and really has reinvigorated the discussion about um, antiretroviral delivery, therapy delivery uh, for prevention by rings. There are now numerous products under evaluation. There's a TDF ring, there's a tenofovir ring, there's a vicroviroc uh, ring, which is a CCR uh, antagonist. There's an NK2048, which is an integrate race inhibitor ring um, combination, those two products. And so people are very interested, obviously, in doing this, and it would be very nice, again, to have a ring that contains perhaps two classes, to have a ring that contains contraception, which is also um, actually underway. So very exciting. We and others are looking at 
some hormonal uh, ring studies in South Africa in particular to look at data on those rings and their effect on the local immunity and the microbiome. So stay tuned for some of that. Um, in the interest of time, I'll go through this very quickly because Crip already mentioned uh, cabotegravir. Uh, you know what this is because of uh, his talk, but just to mention, it's very good for Crip um, as a long-acting injectable and also because it has a very high genetic barrier to resistance. Uh, the HPTN 077 study showed uh, that um, looked at the um, quarterly injectable cabotegravir compared to placebo. That's in follow-up, and we'll be seeing data from that soon. And then Tripp mentioned the 083 study, which is the study of quarterly injectable cab compared to daily oral, oral PDF-FTC for PrEP. And that study is poised to enroll and, as he mentioned, will be occurring here. Uh, again, in the interest of time, I'm just going to skip over these slides, but in your handout, you have summaries, uh, graphic summaries of the very complex um, design of these studies. And again, it speaks to the fact that we no longer have a placebo arm for these studies. Uh, a reminder that, and this I think is really fascinating, so that study, 083, of men who have sex with men and transgender women, you'll notice, was a comparative non-inferiority study with oral TDF-FTC, okay? So they're comparing that drug with cabotegravir. The companion study, 084, is a trial in women, which is actually a superiority study, um, looking at daily oral TDF-FTC. So this is actually going to be a placebo uh, study. So very interesting sort of ethical and, um, and biomedical, I would say, considerations. And the reason that this is designed differently is because the argument is that we don't have as much robust data to support the use of daily oral FTC TDF in women um, because of the, the data that I talked to you about in a moment. And then just a couple of pictures and, and a reminder just to tell you that these are some of the sustained release devices that are being looked at in some of the multipurpose prevention trials. So some of these rings, um, I think, very exciting. Uh, here's where they are, preclinical, advanced preclinical, and phase one clinical stages. So very, very, I think, exciting times. So just to wrap up, I'll just say that PrEP works when taken consistently. It's the most effective tool for preventing HIV by sexual transmission that we have so far. I think the challenge is that we have only one antiretroviral class out there at the moment, tenofovir-based, and data for women is still, I would say, less than, less than robust. We do have some critically dependent results coming up, particularly the HPTN studies of long-acting agents that I mentioned. And I really didn't have time to talk about rectal microbicides, but there are several compounds that are being looked at. I don't know when or if they will get to large-scale studies, but there's a tenofovir gel product that had to be reformulated from the vaginal formulation because the vaginal formulation is too hyperosmolar and basically caused diarrhea. So a little bit of a setback there, but I do think that this would be fantastic as an on-demand product that could be used as a lube uh, for people who didn't have the opportunity to load themselves up with tenofovir beforehand, and I already mentioned combination products. So I'll stop there, and I think I've got a little time for some questions, but thank you. Thank you, my assistant. Thank you. So let's go back and just do quickly my last two questions. Oh, I think all my extra slides got set. Oh, oh no. Okay. 
which of the following is true? So you guys did very well in this, so why don't you go ahead and vote on this one again. This was the question about safety of DLA TDF FTC as PrEP for HIV. Can I say that again? Too late now, sorry. <laughs> sorry, so uh, let's see what you vote. Oh my goodness, you were listening. That makes me so happy, thank you. 100%. Um, and then, um, so you went up to 100%, and then how about this one? Approximately how long does a woman need to take, or consistently take, uh, oral TDF-FTC to achieve protective levels in the cervix and vaginal tissues? Go ahead and vote, please. <laughs> That's how long it takes to Nahavir to get to the cervix or vaginal tissues. Okay, I confused you. So remember, it's 25 days, okay? So you do get the, you get it fast, but if you really want it consistent, you gotta get it, take it over 25 to 30 days. So really, I would tell people that they need to take it longer. So, um, sounds good. Okay, Scott. Okay, great. We have time for questions now. Uh, we'll go to the mic. Okay, hi. Um, I'm a little afraid to ask this question because, um, and I prescribe a lot of prep, but I wonder what we're really accomplishing. I mean, if you have tens of thousands of people on two HIV meds a day for years versus some much greater, much less uh, number of people on three drugs if they get infected and they're not gonna die of AIDS anyway. So I don't really know what the end point is. Okay. So I think the end point is ultimately prevention of HIV infection through chemoprophylaxis until we get a vaccine. Um, so I think m you're right, it's two versus three drugs, but the whole uh, universe of complications of chronic HIV infection, even in the face of suppressed viral load, um, really can't be um, dismissed. So cardiovascular inflammatory complications, metabolic complications, I think um, given, given what we're seeing with those, much better to prevent those uh, complications and infection, particularly in people who are getting infected at age 18, 19, 20, which is really what we're seeing. So I think PrEP to me is a temporizing tool, right? We, it's not gonna be a tool for the next two decades, I hope. I mean, I really hope that we will be able to have a vaccine, certainly in our lifetime, and until then, we hopefully will get better, more streamlined, more um, targeted PrEP agents to, to make it work. I agree right now, using your main drug that you're using for treatment for PrEP is really not the best case scenario. It's kind of like using chloroquine for malaria prophylaxis back in the day when they used their best malaria drug for prophylaxis and then lost it. So I think it'll get better. This is just a first step. So uh, Jeannie, just to note, we have the most questions so far oh, good. about PrEP. Probably because so I was confusing. But no, you're stimulating a lot of good stuff. Um, do you recommend TDF alone for PrEP? Oh, great question. Um, so the Partners in Prevention study that I mentioned um, is the only study that really systematically randomized TDF alone, TDF-FTC, or oral placebo, um, and they showed beautifully with discordant couples that there was no statistically significant difference between TDF-FTC and TDF. Interestingly, there's a different um, trend in the direction for efficacy in men versus women, but not enough for anybody to get very excited about. So certainly, in, if TDF is all you have access to or it's less expensive, um, 
that certainly worked at least in heterosexual discordant couples. Now, um, is that going to be different based on your background resistance profiles in the community, K65R mutations, et cetera, um, you know, M184? We don't really know, but certainly TDF would be adequately supported by the available data. Uh, PrEP in adolescence. Ah, great question. So Sybil Hosick, I, I didn't include that slide. Um, Sybil Hosick uh, presented data at, I think in Durban, um, uh, on the HPTN study looking at uh, PrEP uh, in adolescence, a heroic effort uh, to enroll um, very young at-risk adolescents um, in this PrEP study. Very disappointing uh, levels of adherence, uh, despite incredible efforts by the teams. So I think it just highlights the fact, and, and they tried to look at safety. I mean, and it was a safety, sa the product was safe to the extent that the people involved or the participants used it but just really highlights the challenges of getting the people most at need of PrEP into these types of trials. My sense is that we're not gonna really learn what we need to learn about delivery to really vulnerable populations, including as adolescents and many transgender people, until we have demonstration projects that get those drugs to them in settings where they don't need to go through the rigmarole that's required to be in a clinical trial. What were the reasons for low adherence with the younger women on the Depivirine ring Oh, study. great question. Um, in the Depivirine ring studies, um, that actually I would say is still being evaluated. We don't have all those data yet. Um, some of them were prevented, presented in Chicago, but, but not, not to the extent that we have it for the FEMPREP and the VOICE studies, which were the oral PrEP studies. My suspicion is it's gonna be very similar because they were exactly the same sites, same population. Um, and in those studies, women told us, we actually did focus groups and we went back into the communities and we stratified them by adherers versus non-adherers because we really wanted the truth. Um, and needless to say, neither I nor any of my staff who did the study were running the focus groups because we really wanted it to be objective. What we heard was that women didn't use the products because they couldn't imagine taking an HIV drug to prevent HIV. Um, HIV drugs were products, number one, that very were very much associated with stigma. Um, in fact, uh, many people, if you have ever been to any clinics in, in some of these, these settings, you'll walk out of an HIV treatment clinic and you'll see a, a huge trash bin full of all the um, containers that people uh, have been dispensed medications in because people take, take the drugs out of the containers, put them in their pocket and throw the containers away because they're not going to go home with containers that have HIV uh, drug names on them. So stigma was huge. Um, also because people who found out they were in the studies and they were in a study of HIV prevention assumed they either had HIV or they were at risk for HIV and were behaving badly. So there were some social harms from participation, particularly from boyfriends and husbands uh, and families. So those two things were uh, probably the main reason um, and, uh, and also just suspicion that it was not really gonna work um, and they didn't, weren't really at risk with HIV anyway. Okay, last question. Um, you mentioned that the, the young man who presents with an STD should go home with a prescription for PrEP. That what was a little edgy, but it, it's not too far from how I really feel. What about baseline labs is the question. Do yeah. you wait I, for those yeah. results to come back? Well, it depends. Um, yes, if you're you know really conforming to guidelines. Um, but I have seen some young men who I feel like they're gonna get HIV tonight. I mean, really, they are just, their lives are just disordered. They're really not, you know, I mean, you, 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 you take care of these people, right? It's not just young men, it's, it's whoever. So in those cases, maybe I would give them a week 
you know, and just sort of say, look, we're going to get some baseline labs. I want you to protect yourself to the extent that you can right now, and we have the tools for you to do that. So, you know, take a dose, see how you feel, um, you know, try to be safe, um, and let's get these labs. But, you know, I think a single dose or two of, of PDF-FTC in somebody, and, and baseline laboratory dysfunction is so uncommon in these young, healthy people that I think sometimes the, the benefit outweighs the risk. Last question, just because someone asked it after you emphasized the point, TAF for PrEP? Yeah, I would not use TAF for PrEP. Um, you know, there's an, I, I didn't mention this, but there is a nice study by the CDC group that um, studies macaques and has done beautiful studies for all the PrEP agents looking at efficacy um, for rectal and vaginal cervical exposure in macaques. Um, in those monkeys, TAF worked to prevent um, simian HIV infection, um, but in that human tissue sampling uh, study that I mentioned that was presented at CROI, people were pretty disturbed that TAF didn't show up at all um, in either the rectal or cervical tissues. Again, you know, we don't really know mechanistically where those drugs need to be in the genital epithelium, lymph node, mucosa to protect um, and to meet the virus and take it out right there. Um, so I would say in the absence of clinical data um, and until we get the results of this large trial, which is just poised to take off, uh, comparing them directly, I would not use it. Okay. Let's thank Dr. Morasso. Thanks. Thank you very much. If I didn't get to your question, Jeannie will be available. We're going to take a break now, uh, 15 minutes, so please come back at 1035. We're very close to schedule. <laughs>